I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high-quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere. You know, the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Hey there. Ever wonder what happens to all those amazing screenplays that never make it to the big screen? Wonder no more. Welcome to Table Read Podcast, where we bring those undiscovered gems to life. Picture this. Talented actors giving incredible performances with the occasional laugh or blooper thrown in, produced by award-winning pros. From drama to comedy, TV pilots to feature films, there's something for everyone. And guess what? We release new episodes every week, so don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Table Read Podcast, where great stories finally get their chance to shine. Hi, I'm Chanti. And I'm Lynx, and you're listening to Muses. Enjoy the show. Yeah, so you're telling me that you're dealing with a little bit of seasonal allergies right now? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I think it's also every once in a while, especially when CK sheds. Yeah. I notice it a lot more. And this morning I woke up and I was a little puffy and everything. And then he sat on my lap to get some like morning cuddles. And after that, I was just a mess. And I haven't (laughs) put my contacts in. I'm just like I was scratching and. I'm I'm all right now. I'm looking forward to hearing a story. I'm glad I don't have to read the screen this time. I'm glad yeah. it's you presenting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you need to stop to blow your nose or whatever, <laughs> and I'll try and edit out any sniffles if they happen. <laughs> Appreciate that. <laughs> all right. Well, today I'm presenting an episode. It's hard to say what it's about. I don't want to just say this is a story about the Allman Brothers Mm -hmm. because it's not like it's not just the story about the Allman Brothers band. It's based on a book that I read called Please Be With Me, a song for my father, Dwayne Allman by Galadriel Allman. Oh, what a pretty name. Do you know that? I was going to ask you, do you know where Galadriel comes from? No, it's familiar, to... but yeah, tell me. It's a Lord of the Rings character. Oh, that's right. That I was like, I know it, but like, it's, uh, Lord of the Rings. Wow, I never would have thought Allman was a Lord of the Rings fan. 
Yes. And I'll save it for when we get to her birth about how it came to be. Okay. Because cool. it'll be fun to get to know everybody a little bit before I just let you know how, yeah. how it came to be. So what's really wonderful about this book is that, A, it's an Allman Brothers Band biography all in itself. It has every detail you could possibly want up until the early 70s. It doesn't go far beyond 1972, but for a real how the band came to be, it's absolutely all there. Now, I'm not exactly going to cover every single tiny detail of Dwayne and Greg Allman's rise to fame and to who they came to be, but I'll add in enough. What I'm really going to talk about in this episode is the women around them who shaped them to be who they became. Amazing. And yeah, who better to tell this story than his daughter? So that brings me to my next point, which is that you know how a lot of times books are written by a musician or by somebody and it's with an actual writer and the actual writer brings everything, I guess, that they can't to life. Well, Galadriel is a real writer. Oh, she's nice. You can tell that she got whatever it is that those almond men had in regards to writing and creativity and poetry. She got it. This uh, was one of the most well-written books I've ever read. Wow. Oh, that this must have been such a great one to and so random that you picked it cuz yeah. you're not like a huge almond brother person. No, no, I didn't even know that much about them and I listened to the music while I was writing up the episode and it was beautiful. It was it was beautifully written. I love all of the different stories. I loved the detail. So I really leave out so much. I'll, I'll for the check sake it out. of yeah. keeping things succinct. So definitely a great book to read. Highly cool. recommend it. So the book was written in 2014, rather recently enough. And Gladriel began writing this book when she turned 40 years old. It took her two years wow. to write it. And what she did was she traveled during that time and she met with everybody from her father's past, especially in regards to his music- musicianship that would was available to talk to her about him. Wow, what an amazing journey that must have been. Well, it was. The reason why this journey was so important to her is because she was only two years old when Dwayne died. He Mm. was 24 years old. And her mother wasn't very forthcoming over the years with detailed information. And Galadriel never entitled to asking a bunch of questions about her father because she didn't want to hurt anyone. I got it. Yeah. She didn't want to bring up any. Yeah. So a lot of her life was listening to his music and not really knowing the man behind it. Galadriel starts off her book with a quote by Anais Nin. That's Mm. where the myth fails, human love begins. 
Then we love a human being, not our dream, but a human with flaws. Wow, that's a good quote. Yeah, a lot of the books we read have these kind of quotes at the beginning, and I never add them in, but this one I felt was particularly perfect. Yeah. Greg Allman calls the book a revelation, and he's not just saying that to be nice. Yeah. Like I said, I we've read some really well-written books over the years, and I feel like if they're not or if they're a little bit you could tell they're kind of self-published. We don't really point that out too much. We're not really there to put anyone down. We're just glad that the book got written and that the person was brave enough to put their story out there and self-publish it or whatever. But this is not one of those books. This is like, it's pretty flawless. Amazing. Yeah. So because Galadriel didn't learn her father's story naturally she didn't just grow up being like let me tell you stories about your father she had to seek it out herself and so of course you feel maybe the sense of emptiness when you know that there's a story there but you've never really been absolutely on it yeah a whole part of her life kind of not there yeah Galadriel says that her father's story is more than a tragedy It's a true romance. He fell in love with his guitar and gave his heart away. I quote, The sound he found helped change the way the world perceived the South. White Southern boys were most known for backward thinking and racist cruelty. My father's guitar sang out idealistic, astounding music that tipped that notion over. The Allman Brothers Band made every Southerner with a radio proud of himself. Hmm. Once when Galadriel was four... And she was on the side of the stage in her mother's arm at an Almond Brothers show. Greg took her out of her mother's arms and brought her onto the stage and into the microphone. He said, this is my brother's little girl and he lives on through her. Aww. Aww, that's so beautiful. Yeah. Do you know how Dwayne Almond died? I don't. Oh, wait. Was it like, uh, no, I feel like it's. Is it like a car accident or something? Very close. It was a motorcycle accident. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I just wasn't sure if you knew. The Allman Brothers Band became known for their amazing live performances. Their success came fast. Their chemistry was undeniable. It was one of those bands that just had to be a band. As some people may know, may or may not know, three different bands inspired or it said has inspired Cameron Crowe to create Stillwater in Almost Famous and the Allman Brothers band was one of those bands reading this book I really got a lot of parts of them that became Stillwater that must have been fun yeah yeah so you can you'll hear them when I say them and then we'll point it out as well so As I said, this is a great book for the band's biography. You get the very early, early stories of Greg and Dwayne Allman, their parents, their grandparents, and then, of course, how the band would eventually go from learning their instruments to touring in a van to touring in a Winnebago, a tour bus, a private jet. Yeah. They played dive bars and parks, and then, of course, right as Dwayne was tragically lost in an accident, <sighs> st- stadiums. Yeah. 
Dwayne himself was extremely sought after as a guitar player by Eric Clapton, Aretha Franklin, Wilson Pickett, King Curtis, and Bog Skeggs. Wow. According to Rolling Stone magazine, Dwayne Allman is remembered as one of the greatest rock guitarists of all time, second only to Jimi Hendrix. I did not know that he was that well-respected as a guitarist. Galadriel continues that thought by writing just a few short years into his remarkable career after creating several of the best loved rock and roll songs ever recorded. He was killed in a motorcycle accident at the intersection of Hillcrest Avenue and Bartlett Street in McCone, Georgia on October 9th, 1971. He was 24 years old and I was too. We never had the chance to know each other. Ah, so tragic. Ah. Since the band was number one in America by 1972. Galadriel did have an opportunity to be present at many shows just as a little baby. Um, Her mother carrying her through backstage doors. (laughs) So if you didn't already know, the character Red Dog the Roadie was truly based on a man named Red Dog who was a roadie for the Allman Brothers band. He was a legend. And even though um, the family like never knew like if they were seeing them on stage, if they would be hot or cold towards the family and the women with the babies going to see the shows, they could always count on Red Dog to greet them with a huge smile and a hug. And he'd grab Galadriel in one of his arms and take care of his business <laughs> on the stage with the joint hanging out of his mouth. <laughs> He kissed her cheeks, called her princess, and said she looked just like her daddy. Aww. Galadriel says, I loved his wild red curls and gruff, scratchy drawl. He may have been a badass, but he was also a prince. That's so cool that she remembers him, and it sounds like Cameron Crowe captured him perfectly. He was uh, an awesome addition to the film. Yes. With the band pretty much living to tour... Galadriel was raised in a world of women and children, saying the main things we had in common with the band were our shared losses and our love of the music, which was always a force of good in in all of our lives. But as she came to grow up, although her father's music was everywhere, there was a void in her life. And there are very few photos of her mother and her father and herself all together. She wanted to fill the space of knowledge with him to replace the confusion When Galadriel would ask her mother about her father, she would say, listen to him play. His music is the best of him. Hmm. And we'll get to why, I guess, she doesn't want to. That's all she would say about him. Yeah. It's a familiar story. I gotcha. Galadriel says, how many daughters can lift the needle of a record player and trace backward to the first groove in an album and hear their fathers young, strong, and alive? I have no memories of my father, but even as a young child, I understood he was not lost completely. I could find him in my own pale face and red hair. Mm -hmm. So she knew that asking her mother would hurt her. So she was set on searching elsewhere first. And then I think she kind of came back to her. She tells a pretty incredible story about how she was in a junk store in Georgia and found a Rolling Stone magazine from 1971, which was a memorial, had a memorial cover of him. He was on the cover. The proprietor grabbed it out of her hands and said, this is not for sale. Do you even have any idea the value of that? Do you even know who (laughs) Dwayne Allman is? (laughs) Little did he know. Yeah. So she didn't say anything. 
She just turned yeah. around and walked out. When she was 21, she inherited his beloved Gibson Les Paul guitars that had been kept safe for her by Twigs Linden, their tour manager, and Dwayne's close friend. Galadriel has loaned both of those guitars to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh, that's so cool. So she had stuff like that of his. Yeah. She was in her early 30s. She received a piece of material, a cuff of fancy silk shirt that Eric Clapton gave her father during the Layla recording sessions. Hmm. The cuff of the shirt was sent by a stranger who once dated her uncle Greg and had taken the panels, I guess, of the back of the shirt and sold them on eBay for $15,000. Wow. This is kind of giving you an idea of what Dwayne Allman meant to people. Parts of his shirt were being sold for tens of thousands of dollars. It's like little pieces of him on sale. That's crazy. Exactly. You nailed it. So imagine feeling that way about your father. Yeah. Right? Wow. Exactly. Like clues about him were scattered everywhere. Yeah. He was a fragmented person between yeah. those things and tickets, ticket stubs and concert posters, hospital records. Yeah. She also felt that a lot of his life belonged to strangers. Absolutely. Yeah. <sighs> it's interesting so, because it's like the fans owned him at that point. You know? It's an interesting thing. So what Galadriel did with the cuff of the shirt that she had been mailed is that she put it in a frame. She loaned it to the museum that was built inside the home where she learned to walk. This place is called the Allman Brothers Museum at the Big House. Amazing that another group or person has like a home that's now a museum of them. That's so cool. And so it's in a case in a room where the band once practiced. Awesome. Uh, Last thing I'll say about his legacy impacting her as she grew up is that people would notice her last name, like on her credit card and like hold her up in line to tell her about an experience they had at like an Almond Brothers concert back in the day. And she said that she has seen several tattoos of her father's face on oh, another person's body it's interesting because obviously francis being cobain hasn't written a book but it would probably be so similar her experiences growing up with people really idolizing and taking ownership of this person that you really are connected to but also never got a chance to truly connect to and grow with you know yeah galadriel wanted something more personal from her father obviously besides these like fragmented pieces that she was finding from strangers Mm -hmm. you know she felt like an outsider and even wanting to approach her uncle Greg for information she was feeling like someone who was approaching him for an autograph like maybe she wasn't entitled to ask him she also didn't feel entitled to write and put the exposure up for public consumption but writing was the only thing she ever wanted to do and she knew that she was born into an incredible story as she says an epic tale starring a hero for the ages how could I resist (laughs) 
She writes, The Allman Brothers Band has a particularly juicy backstory. Bikers and booze, heroin and teenage groupies, even murder in prison. Damn. that's So it's all in there. It's all in the <laughs> book. Check it out. I highly recommend. Galadriel had a particularly a particular interest in the story of the women surrounding the band. And of course, so do I. So there were a few different ways we could have focused this episode, but I thought let's talk about the women. Absolutely. She says, which I love. Yeah. The men's life on the road was fairly well documented, but I knew it wasn't the whole story. Yeah. Don't we know that? So Galadriel luckily finally allowed herself to feel entitled to the stories and ask the questions as she became brave enough to ask her grandmother, the wives and children of other band members and crew, Dwayne's cousin and friends, and all of these people gave her an enriched picture of her father. I bet you that's like where it really came together for her, was talking to these women. We always talk about how these memoirs and biographies are such a healing time it's a healing practice and a journey for these women and this is one of the hugest ones for sure I've ever felt her life was totally changed by doing this missing pieces were assembled this story is my song of love built around the last chord Hmm. it's very poetic really nice it was a really nice read so the women that I'm going to talk about include Dwayne and Greg's mother, Jerry, their cousin, Joe Jane, Dwayne's wife, and Galadriel's mother, Donna, and a little bit about Patty, who is Dwayne's first wife, but not a whole lot. And they were so young. You'll kind of see when I get there. Okay. So it's these private family moments and more of the boy's upbringing that was particularly shaped by these really strong women. So let's start with Jerry, their mother and avid motorcycle rider and lover. (laughs) Awesome. The boys actually wanted to put her on a cover of their album. They have a photo of her driving a Harley Davidson. When she was younger. Yeah. And she said no. Aww. But Gladriel says she has the photo <laughs> on her desk and she looks at it and she attached the photo in the book. So I'll show it to you. That's so cool. And it shows you how much their mother meant to them that like that was even a, a consideration to them, you know? Oh, yeah. So the first rebel on a Harley that the boys ever knew were the, was their own mother. <laughs> She could, you know, out drink the boys, um, but she was a beauty, blonde curls, blue eyes, high heeled shoes. She Mm. had been married straight out of high school before she married Dwayne and Greg's father in 1935. So this woman was like riding a motorcycle in the 30s and 40s. How cool is that? She sounds amazing. She met Bill Allman in 1943. And he was from Van Leer, Tennessee. Do you remember Van Leer? I don't. We talked about it in Loretta Lynn's episode. Oh, okay. So Van Leer had like the one, you know, county store. It's gotcha. You know, you could come down from the mountains and 
yeah small but like you know the the homes had dirt floors yeah really small so they were married and he was drafted to the war Uh, yeah it's you know she met him in 1943 yeah she waited for his letters she drove her motorcycle and she worked managing a restaurant out by the airport she spent time with her friends she loved her husband but she enjoyed her independence of course when he returned he was a changed man yeah he survived d-day and was never the same wow He was reassigned a few different times and they moved all over. They settled in Nashville and then along came Howard Dwayne Allman, followed by Gregory Lenoir Allman, one year and 18 days later. (laughs) Dwayne didn't adjust well to his baby brother. And (laughs) I quote, any little part of Greg that dangled out of his crib was liable to get chomped. Oh. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Do you like science fiction? I'm Carrie Bechet, and if you loved movies like Arrival or Interstellar, then you're going to want to check out my podcast, Hypothetical. On Hypothetical, we tell speculative sci-fi stories interwoven with real science. New episodes every Tuesday, available wherever you get podcasts. They moved once more from Nashville to Virginia, and while Jerry was sad to leave her friends and their community, she was happy that they moved because Virginia was beautiful and they would be living by the sea. She continued to work. She was working in a shop, which she felt kept her mind sharp and helped with money. She'd bring the boys down to the beach on her days off. In photos of the time, you see Dwayne smiling with intensity and Greg a little pensive. (laughs) Their essential nature is captured in the frame. The boys lost their father fairly young. Bill had actually been murdered. Whoa. I was not expecting that. Wow. A hitchhiker. Just like an unwell person, unfortunately. It was a wrong time, wrong, bad place situation. Wow. And Gladriel was a teenager when she learned this about her grandfather. She only saw his photograph for the first time when she was 30 years old. Wow. I've never seen a photograph of my parent, my dad's parents or wow, his brother really? or sister. I don't know what any of them look like. Oh my yeah. goodness. He just doesn't have them? He never did. And we, we've tried to find them and everything. And there's just nothing there. Yeah. Oh, that's sad. It's just a mystery to me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always like so curious to know, but 
Yeah. It is weird when like you don't like, you know, they exist, but like you don't have like a image in your mind of them. I bet that there's someone listening that's like, this is what I do for a living. I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you find. Well, hey, email us. <laughs> Use this pod at gmail.com. <laughs> when Galadriel saw the photo, she realized that the grandfather had her father's eyes and so also hers. Yeah. She realized that she shared something stronger with her father, and it was the bond of having lost a father at a very fragile age. Mm. She writes, learning that death is real and sudden and loss never ends. Wow, yeah. So the amazing Jerry moved back to Nashville for a while. She found another job, and she even turned down her first husband, who came back after hearing the news. <laughs> Did you need to, need to step in? She's like, no, Get I'm lost. fine. I'll handle this. Uh, I love so her. She was going to go it alone. Since she was working, the boys pretty much had the freedom to run around with the other neighborhood children and get into trouble. Dwayne was moody and he would not only beat up on his brother, Greg, but he'd like kick the shit out of anybody in the neighborhood. Nobody crossed him. He was that kind of personality. Do you know what I mean? He was always that kind of, yeah. There's always the one you don't mess with. Yeah, exactly. Everyone knows. But the boys stuck together like two sides of a coin. At age eight and nine, the boys were sent to a boarding school which of course brings up feelings of betrayal and then hard lessons learned within the school. Yeah. So it's like, well, why would Jerry send them there? She thought maybe it would kind of get them off of like running around like the streets a lot, maybe get them a little bit of discipline. Um, Dwayne was just kind of pissed about it. And then Greg, you know, the baby was just devastated and heartbroken. Yeah. But one important thing to note that came out of the boarding school situation was that it was during the music lessons where the boys learned how to play and discovered their rare natural talents. Makes sense. Yeah. She did take the boys out of school not too long after, and they all moved to Daytona Beach. Hmm. Apparently, Jerry still lives in the house she'd built in 1959. Whoa. Cool. Yeah. So then it was kind of there that they all settled there. She kept working, even though people were like, why don't you work less and stay home with your kids more? She's like, no, I've like raised them to have this kind of like certain lifestyle. We're not going to start like cutting coupons now. They're used gotcha. to a certain thing. And so we're just going to keep it that way. So what Jerry did was during the summertime, she brought in a very another very important female figure into the boys' lives, and that was their cousin Joe Jane. Cool. So Joe Jane was 15 years old when she came to visit for a summer. Greg and Dwayne were both 10 and 11, and then she acted as both playmate and babysitter. And yeah. these two women would go on to just support and encourage the boys and like who they really were for their whole lives, like in careers, basically. Of course they did. They were some of the most supporting and influential relationships on them. Wow. So together, the three of them would buy comic books, read them, listen to records and even play pretend rock star. So Dwayne would be Elvis. Greg would be Ricky Nelson and Joe Jane would take any part of every girl singer. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Or she'd take the part of every girl. Yeah, yeah. 
She really encouraged their love of music and performance right from these young ages. By Dwayne's freshman year of high school, given the fact that he had so much freedom growing up, he had access to music and instruments and was encouraged by the women in his family. Galadriel writes, layers of experience covered him like armor. He lived with energy and intensity, wildly and intelligent, and a defiant nature and the seeds of his creativity were germinating in his restlessness and discomfort. Hmm. Yeah, so I think probably losing his father so soon his mom providing the best that she could but being absent a lot and then just kind of having you know the run of whatever maybe being a part of the boarding school really it just it was really shaping him into this like kind of individual or this kind of young person but he had so much drive too yeah The boys like to travel from Daytona to Nashville. Like they like to go see their old friends. As soon as they were old enough, they were able to go back and forth by themselves. They were always on the move. They picked up fashion from the different states that they went to and kind of brought it back to where they were living. And people were kind of like, what are these guys doing? (laughs) But also kind of like, that's cool. Yeah. (laughs) And so they started to begin their incarnations of all of the different bands that they'd be over the years, you know, same shtick, playing house parties, practicing their instruments, playing at the Y, playing fraternities, proms, Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Gotcha. And it was during all this time that actually Greg's gift as a natural singer developed. So this kind of reminds me a little bit of like the Heart Sisters, where we have Anne and Nancy Wilson and one like they they both have amazing voices, but one is a guitar player and yeah. one is the voice. And it seemed very much this kind of dynamic between this band from, from what the get-go. I, yeah. I'm learning. So hopping back to Jerry, when she so she encouraged Dwayne to get a job. When he could. Again, just like stop running around and causing trouble. Although it doesn't sound like he got into any kind of big trouble. Yeah. So anyways, he did get a job at a strip club. (laughs) And what did Jerry do? She let him. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah. It's a paid gig. It's a job. Yeah. A job's a job. In music. Yeah. So she thought she saw it as a great opportunity for him. Love her. I love her so much. In 1965, the brothers were offered a gig. The band was called, they called themselves the Escorts. (laughs) Um, And they opened up for the Beach Boys. Oh, cool. All of the encouragement and support was paying off. When Greg graduated high school, they renamed their band the Allman Joys and started to hit the road. When Dwayne was 17 in 1964, he and his 16-year-old girlfriend, Patty, had a baby. Wow. Galadriel would not find out about this until 1989 and through a letter from a stranger. Oh, whoa. Yes. So the little baby ended up being put up for adoption. And I think uh, she was deaf and she ended up like being adopted with a family that could accommodate her and knew all of the things to do to support her. So it sounds like, you know, 16 and 17 years old, giving up a baby for adoption with some, yeah. They did what they felt was best for the baby. Yeah. Yeah. So 
even after Dwayne and Patty split up, they would continue to see each other sporadically for years after that. No one knows too much about her. And Galadriel was just told that Dwayne was private about some things. Hmm. When Dwayne was 20 and Patty was 19, they did marry. So that was his first wife. So, of course, the book goes on to describe in detail the evolution of the band, their sound, the first songs, the recordings, adding band members, Dwayne narrowly avoiding the draft and getting Greg to shoot him in the foot while Joe Jane watched on. So, <laughs> and it worked. <laughs> and it worked. Oh, of course it did. <laughs> wow. You know, them heading out to L.A., being on the same bill as The Doors, meeting Janis Joplin, writing with cool. Stephen Stills and Jackson Brown, wow. their fashion, the atmosphere, the drugs. It's all there. It's all in the book. Love it. Great. But we only have so much time, don't we? Yeah. So let's talk about Donna. Donna's Galadriel's mother. Galadriel describes her mother as a gypsy and a rebel. Now, I know that we don't use the word gypsy anymore because the way that Galadriel is intending it to be is to, de- is to describe somebody who is independent, free-spirited, and just kind of bopped around from place to place a little yeah, bit. Yeah, like a nomad type of thing. Yeah. As opposed to somebody who is a part of, like, a um, migrant tribe. Yeah. So Donna's mother was named Tommy Jean. So I love the name Tommy for a woman. T-O-M-M-I-E. Cool. I think that's so cool because I love the name Tommy. That was a name in the running for Dale. But I've actually already had a dog named Tommy. So I was like, can I, name, can I have two dogs named Tommy? But maybe if we have a girl, we might name her Tommy now that Tommy? I know that Tommy Jean rocked that. Yeah. Tommy Jean made Donna's clothes. She had the air of a movie star, but she kept a really strict home. She was, sounds like the opposite of Jerry. Okay. I like how they both have masculine names, Tommy and Jerry. Yeah. Tom and Jerry. Oh, God. (laughs) I'm I'm sure Dwayne and Donna must have laughed about that at some point in their lives. For sure. Uh, That was good. (laughs) Growing up, Donna went to mass at All Souls Church. Her dinner table at home was quiet. They weren't a very lively, chatty family. She rarely gave her parents trouble. Her worst offense was being moody and withdrawn. She wore her bleach blonde bangs in her eyes and her eyeliner thick. Nice. Her mother, Tommy Jean, would catch her on the way out the door and try to rub off her eyeliner and tug down the hem of her skirt. (laughs) Donna would just run outside, jump in the car. Go, Donna. Yeah, Donna did have to move out of her home at the age of 18 because I think she was feeling so stifled. So she moved in with her boyfriend and her mom would convince her to come home and she'd be like, no. But really, Donna was just staying at this guy's place. Like nothing was really seriously going on with them. It doesn't seem. In the summer of 1968, her father gave her a VW Beetle. Galadriel says, and she really got her look together. She bought a pair of knee-high boots and peach satin mini dress and round wire-rimmed sunglasses. And then she met Dwayne. I can picture the image of her perfectly in that awesome outfit, meeting Dwayne. Yeah. Nice. It was after a Jefferson Airplane concert. Cool. Gladriel notes that Donna was very impressed by Grace Slick. 
realizing that oh women can do that too yeah and do it well Ah. so as donna was walking outside the auditorium down the road with a couple of friends a van pulled up and Dwayne stuck his head out of the van out of the window and told donna and the people that she was with that there was a house party happening now (laughs) and asked if they wanted to come what does that remind you of does that scene make you think of any other scene coming out of the concert hall a van pulling up being like hey you this party at my friend's house (laughs) i thought amazing i thought it sounded a little bit like the almost famous scene but absolutely it's perfect yeah except the famous musician was in the van not walking down the street although he wasn't famous yet as we know so Dwayne really captivated the whole room at the party he was that kind of guy he was charismatic eyes were on him he was an entertainer and after that he invited donna to forest park and she went so they saw each other again after that and they pretty much were dating immediately but before they really got together Dwayne said well just wait until you meet my brother greg because he's the looker of the family so you might actually decide that you want him she met greg and she decided that Dwayne was in fact the one for her she wasn't sure if he was serious but Either way, she was like, no, I, I like you. So they hung out together while Dwayne was living with Joe Jane in St. Louis. So yeah, it's like it kind of got to the point too where Joe Jane was always there that if the guys ever needed a place, it's always like, yeah, you've always got a couch or a room or whatever with me. Gotcha. It doesn't matter where I am. So she was always, they always had her. She liked Donna. She approved. Good. And of course, like, Joe, I'm sure Joe Jane's approval meant everything to Dwayne. Absolutely, yeah. Donna worked a job proofreading checks at a printing plant. She went with Dwayne when he played gigs, like when he traveled to Nashville, for example. She was actually preparing to sleep with him for the first time and anybody for the first time. So she went to the doctor to get birth control pills. The doctor asked her if she was married. She said oh. that she wasn't. Then the doctor asked her if her parents knew that she was there getting those pills. She said they didn't. So she was denied birth control. Oh my God. These stories are just so infuriating. And to know that it's still you know, a hassle for some women or impossible for some women to get birth control is just insane. Yeah. Wow. So Galadriel writes... I never realized how quickly it all happened. My parents met and changed the paths of their lives in a matter of months. I thought there must be many stories about their time together before I was conceived, but I had heard them all. It occurred to me with a shock. They were really strangers. When I suggest this to my mother, she bristles and says, Why does everyone always want to count the days we spend together? Haven't you been in love? Don't you know how important every moment is? How infinite time feels. Wow. This book is also filled with letters that Dwayne sent to both Donna and Joe Jane. Oh, cool. So it seems like Donna and Joe Jane allowed Galadriel access to all of this stuff. And I feel like you can really 
access someone's thoughts and feelings through this kind of correspondence. And what a wonderful thing to hold on to and to have kept. Yeah. In the letters that Dwayne sends to Donna, he addresses her as skinny girl. These 1968 letters from the road was like a time capsule with his handwriting that shows the love that he felt for Donna. It was a memory of the good times. So in the book, we learn that Greg and Dwayne took some time off for each other, from each other. Greg headed to LA and was writing and working with others. And this is probably a good thing for them because they had been so close and so intertwined that it was important for them to go off and have some time alone and figure out their own gifts and their skills and realize who they were independently and then come back together. And then yeah. we know what happens when, when that happened. They, they pretty much took off from there, you know? Yeah. So the band, once Greg came back from LA and Dwayne said, let's get it back together. Let's round out the sound. Let's decide on the name. We'll be the Allman Brothers band. They really were just like on a rocket ship to the moon after that. Galadriel learned more about her father's journey, what kind of man he wanted to be before his life was cut short by reading a 1969 appointment calendar that he had gotten for, for Christmas. In that, Dwayne wrote, this year I will be more thoughtful of my fellow man, exert more effort in each of my endeavors professionally as well as personally, take love wherever I find it, and offer it to everyone who will take it. In this coming year, I will seek knowledge from those wiser than me and try to teach those who wish to learn from me. From me. I love being alive, and I will be the best man I possibly can. Oh, that's so heartbreaking knowing it's going to happen soon. Yeah. He sounded like, you know, he was such a good human and wanted to be a good human being and just wanted to live life and experience things. And uh. Yes. Another thing she grew to learn about her father and the Allman Brothers band is that, I quote, they knew the debt of inspiration they owed to the bluesmen of the Mississippi Delta and Chicago, black players whose influence could easily be erased by white musicians covering their songs. Hmm. When it came time to play songs like Stormy Monday or You Don't Love Me, Dwayne would announce the artist names out loud into his microphone before they played their songs at every show. Elmore James, T-Bone Walker, Blind Willie McTowell, Muddy Waters. It was the very least he could do, giving credit where it was due. Amazing. Good so, for them. Yeah. Yeah. On top of this, she says, Dwayne was a curious, hungry young man who tapped into an aspect of the culture in which he was raised. White culture seemed to offer only escapism and denial in the form of pop music. Dwayne's quest led him to the other side of town, to black culture where deeper communication was happening. White artists like Dwayne have been relying heavily on black artists to lead the way forward, always. Creativity isn't born out of comfort and ease. At its best and most moving, music is a means of survival. Blues artists understand that best. Dwayne needed to play. He played to live, and you can hear him living in every note he ever played. Wow. I can see what you say about, like, her, her writing being so beautifully done. Like, every quote is just... I mean, and which is why sometimes I'm, I'm sorry for all of the quotes, but... <laughs> it's worth how it. How can you paraphrase that? Yeah. Like, Exactly. Beautiful. At 18 years old, Donna became pregnant with Galadriel. They were thrilled. 
she was born premature. And when Donna woke up after being sedated during the birth, Dwayne informed her that he had named her Galadriel. (laughs) And that, don't worry, it's already written on the birth certificate. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Wow. Okay. I was like, okay, thanks. He said if she had been a boy, she would have been named Les Paul Allman. (laughs) Glad we got Galadriel then. (laughs) During this time, Donna tried to be understanding and accepting of the life on the road and all of the girls that were beginning to hang around the band or pretty much were straight from the beginning. If she was going to be a part of his world, she was going to try her best to be cool about it. You got to be. I mean, it's going to happen whether you wanted to or not. Yeah. Donna bonded with the other girlfriends and wives in the band. And they were like family. And they were all raising the children of the men in the band. Yeah. They lived together. They cooked together. They saw their men on stage together. One day, Donna saw with her own eyes how Barry, Linda's guy in the band, was with another woman. And Dwayne explained to her, like, that's just how it is. Get lonely on the road or whatever. Or it's just. That's just how it is. You know, and Donna's like, but Linda's so beautiful. She's the mother of his child. And then kind of realizing, like, oh. "Oh." Yeah. Yeah. So Galadriel talks about their short and sweet relationship, how they decorated their first apartment together how they read books together, shared clothing, went fishing, and then ate it for dinner. And so you can see that by Galadriel discovering all of this, putting it down, writing it into a narrative, how it's so healing for her. Yeah. Dwayne himself did eventually have other relationships while still with Donna. Until one day he met someone who he did had this true connection with. And it was just uh, too much for Donna to handle because she started coming into her life. Oh, okay. Like actually meeting her. Oh. So on top of that, all the guys did was tour. They were gone so often. And then, of course, the drug use was becoming heavier and heavier from weed to heroin. Yeah. Someone who is mentioned in this at like the time of the band doing the like really blowing up in this way is a blues player named John H. Hammond. John H. Hammond. Hammond. Yes. Okay. Russell Hammond. Yep. So the band was playing at the Fillmore. They were opening for BB King, Buddy Guy. The band and their wives and children would all gather together and celebrate the band's success with food and drink. The band would only be home for a few days that next year. Gladriel writes, when the band was home, the wives would gather and cook large meals and everyone would come over. The men would play in the music room until the meal was served. Then Barry would raise his glass of wine and stand up. Having everyone in his band and everyone they loved around a dining table felt like a significant accomplishment and he acknowledged it with a toast. Hmm. This kind of information is what uh, Gladriel got from Linda. So Linda was also a part of helping her weave some of the story together. And, you know, so... That seems really nice, but then if like if the women would ever show up to a show unexpected, the guys yeah. would be like, "What are you doing here?" Yeah, there are of course some more tales from the road, more albums coming out, 
stress and pressure mounting, drug use increasing, you know, opening for Pink Floyd and getting a better reception than them and then being asked to play longer and then getting into a fight with the guys in Pink Floyd. <laughs> it's all, you know, it's all kind of there. So I'm going to finish with a couple of good quotes and then we're pretty much wrapped up. So as we know, Dwayne died in a motorcycle accident the following year in 1971, pretty much at the heyday of all of this. Yeah. Hard drugs and groupies were there from the first day. I had imagined an early innocence in 1969 when marijuana and marriage were all anyone wanted, but that's a child's fantasy. When everyone was living together at the hippie crash pad on College Street, the men used to go to the local colleges and check girls out of their dorm rooms for the night like library books. If our mothers didn't know, it's partly because they didn't want to know. So I guess yeah. content warning is coming. Yeah. Content okay. warning coming. Skip 30 yeah. seconds ahead if you are sensitive with band <laughs> sex. I know the tale of communal case of crabs that forced everyone to sit around a hotel room together with their cocks lathered laughing, which seemed funny until it was mentioned that they had gotten into this mess by pulling a train, a poetic way to say a single girl took on all of them. There was Twig's legendary carousel full of slides, each one a different teenage girl naked and splayed and his habit of passing around copies of the statutory rape laws in the different states they passed through. Wow. There were stories of girls who waited by the side of the road topless and climbed into the Winnebago ready to be the jackpot in a poker game. Oh, oh. yeah, that, that was brutal. Blowjobs were given on the side stage within sight of the crowd. They balled on moving motorcycles, on the hoods of cars still warm from a ride, in gas station restrooms during a quick refueling, in Rose Hill Cemetery on graves in the moonlight with other men's wives. I was often told that my father wasn't the one who got up to this mischief, that he'd opt out by holding up the book he was reading, but he (laughs) held his most private cards very close. The crazy thing is, I wanted to know. Even as I felt the dark rage growing in me, I never shut down the story. I will always identify with the women, the ones at home, and even the girls on the road. But I understand that the temptation for a pack of 20-year-old rock stars was impossible to resist. If you were generating the kind of heat they were putting out on stage, it would have been impossible to go to bed and shiver alone. My question, though, is why did they marry and have babies so young? (laughs) Did they need a different kind of life at home, a soft place to fall? Or did they get trapped when our mothers got pregnant? Did they really think of their families that way? Or did they just want it all? Well, they got it all, but it didn't come cheap. Oh, that is so good. She's such a good writer. I know. So did you catch that poker game reference? Oh, yes, I did. That's so interesting. I think a lot of it really has to do with giving these young men so much power and it seems like a lot of them tested their power it's like let's see how much we can get away with and then they get away with that thing and then they think of something crazier and it gets to a point where maybe they don't even recognize themselves anymore and like the things that they're doing but like just being allowed to have that power is so dangerous and leads to so many dark things yeah Oh, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, some of it's fun. And then 
sometimes it can go to a place that's not so fun. So one thing that I find is just such a common thing that we get a lot is say we, especially like on TikTok now, if we're talking about like an Elvis and a Priscilla and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is that people are saying it's not appropriate. Like we get a lot of comments being like, it's not appropriate to say, well, that's just how it was back then. Mm -hmm. But the thing was, it seems, is that it was appropriate or laughable for these men to be passing around the statutory rape law journal in that time. Do you know? Yes, it was still wrong then. Yes, it was. Yet it was still accepted by everyone around. No one was questioning it, at least allowed to everyone else, it seems like which is dangerous, but it is such a fascinating thing to think. Cause like, yeah, it's hard to look back and think, well, how could you ever have thought these things were okay? But do you know what I'm talking about? When you, when, when somebody comments like rapist and then it's like, yes, it was a really messed up time yeah. back then. And it's crazy what was accepted then. And then they respond back being like, that's a cop out. Yeah, for you to even say that and it's like is it like I'm still a bit not fully and well that's an interesting thing too because it's like Sorry. a lot of these things were public they were published in magazines at the time and everything and no one was saying anything like everyone knew about Lori and Sable and again they were in magazines being promoted that way so of course yeah we look back and it's like wow how how was that accepted but it was, it was not only accepted, it was promoted in, in a way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. All right. So we'll move on to the wives, the girlfriends. This is a quote from the book. The relationships between the women in the big house were every bit as significant and satisfying as the brothers relationship to one another. Candy, Linda, and Donna worked hard to make a peaceful and lovely home. They cleaned and baked banana bread and chased the baby girls around. The wonder of being mothers deeply bonded Linda and Donna. Candy was a working woman out in the town at the boutique all day. Her thing with Greg was long over. He had lived with her at the house for a time, but he didn't stay for long. She found a bundle of love letters from the other girls tucked in with his clothes in her wardrobe, and then that was that. She started seeing Kim... The women would pass a joint in the evening and confide in one another, describing the men's bodies and comparing their moves, the little (laughs) things they liked, and they'd lie stretched out on the floor with the stereo turned up, playing the beautiful music the band sent home. The women felt like muses, hearing the love they shared reflected in the songs. That's beautiful. Yeah. So that's it. That's a bit of Galadriel's interpretation of her father. It's also interesting Mm -hmm. to note that they are a Southern band and they grew up with like Southern ideals of, you know, what's expected and what you're supposed to want. And it's also crazy, just crazy to know how young he was when he died, because I remember being a teenager and like knowing Kurt Cobain died at 27 and like knowing that was young, but it still seems so old. Like, well, he had a whole life 
before that, but then you get to that point and then you pass it and you realize like, wow, this guy like 24 when he died. Yeah. And you realize like he never even lit. He was a kid. Mm-hmm. He was a kid himself, you know? Uh, it's crazy. And to know that he had that much of an impact on music and everything, all the years that we lost when he died, like all that music, who would have, who would know, you know, where he would be now and like how much music they would have made. <sighs> Let's finish with this last quote from Galadriel. She's, seems like she's speaking to Dwayne here. I want you to know I understand you better than I used to. There is detail to my longing now. There are moments fully imagined in places where questions used to be. I have walked down streets where you lived and I carried you with me as I traveled. Instead of feeling the weight of you in the center of my chest like the echo of a punch, a new sensation has bloomed in me. It is a longing I do not recognize for a life of my own. I suddenly want the speed of life to pull me forward. I want to live unafraid. I missed the lesson you played so clear and strong every night of your own grown life. The lilting line from joy to the world, winding wild through your hands in the middle of your song. You tried to tell me from where you are to live my life. I'm sorry it took me so long to hear you. What a beautiful episode. Thank you so much for that. And I'm so glad she wrote that book and was able to go on that journey. And I'm sure it it filled a hole that she probably, you know, grew up with so that's beautiful yeah and I barely gave you any like Almond Brothers dates and facts and concerts and albums and no it's know, story about the women I'm sure there are a hundred biographies like that that are exactly straight you know the yeah no so. it was perfect good I'm glad you enjoyed it yeah Gladriel beautiful yeah her writing is as beautiful as her name yeah, and then you can find YouTube videos of her reading parts of her book. And if she's listening, if you're listening, Gladriel, and you've made it all the way here, just thank you so much for writing such a beautiful book. Um, I hope we did it a little bit of justice presenting it in this smaller, compact version. Yeah. And uh, call me. Yeah. <laughs> Email us, musespod at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs> that was super fun. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, I think listeners are going to enjoy this one. It's a little different. And uh, as everyone knows by now, like we're daddy, daddy's girls. True. Right? So yeah. it was, it, I'm glad you did this. Like we needed a daughter telling a tale on this show. So yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. So well, I'm sure there are a few other daughter stories out there as well that we can look into and in the meantime, everybody can check us out on TikTok, MusesPod, Instagram, Facebook, same places. Join us on Stereo Tuesday nights. Yeah, Buy our merch. Patreon. We have a Patreon. Holy We're boy. everywhere. We got it all. We got it all. Okay. What more do you want? What more do you want? <laughs> and we'll see you for another free episode next yes. week. See ya. Bye. Muses is researched, edited, and produced by us, Chantella Mew and Lynx O'Leary.
Hello, friends. This is Mark Nell, executive producer of the Table Read podcast, where imagination meets performance. As we wrap up an incredible season one, we want to take a moment to express our heartfelt gratitude to each and every one of you who tuned in and supported us on this amazing journey. Season one was nothing short of extraordinary. We delved into captivating scripts that transported us to worlds beyond our imagination, thanks to the brilliant writers who delivered these works. But what really brought these stories to life were the talents of our amazing actors. But wait, the excitement doesn't end there. As we bid farewell to season one, we are thrilled to announce the launch of season two. Get ready for more gripping narratives, more unforgettable characters, and more mesmerizing performances that will keep you on the edge of your seat. We have some big surprises coming. The Force will definitely be with you. So stay tuned, stay engaged, and most importantly, stay excited. From all of us at the Table Read Podcast, thank you, and let's make season two even more memorable together.